Book Seven, Sections Fifteen through Seventeen of Politics by Aristotle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Politics by Aristotle, translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book Seven, Sections Fifteen through Seventeen. Fifteen. Since the end of individuals and of states is the same. The end of the best man and of the best constitution must also be the same. It is therefore evident that there ought to exist in both of them the virtues of leisure for peace, as has often been repeated, is the end of war and leisure of toil. But leisure and cultivation may be promoted not only by those virtues which are practised in leisure, but also by some of those which are useful to business. For many necessaries of life have to be supplied before we can have leisure. Therefore, a city must be temperate and brave and able to endure, for truly, as the proverb says, there is no leisure for slaves, and those who cannot face danger like men are the slaves of any invader. Courage and endurance are required for business and philosophy for leisure, temperance and justice for both, and more especially in times of peace and leisure, for war compels men to be just and temperate. Whereas the enjoyment of good fortune and the leisure which comes with peace tend to make them insolent, those then who seem to be the best off and to be in the possession of every good have special need of justice and temperance. For example, those, if such there be, as the poets say, who dwell in the islands of the blessed, they above all will need philosophy and temperance and justice, and all the more the more leisure they have, living in the midst of abundance. There is no difficulty in seeing why the state that would be happy and good ought to have these virtues. If it be disgraceful in men not to be able to use the goods of life, it is peculiarly disgraceful not to be able to use them in time of leisure, to show excellent qualities in action and war, and when they have peace and leisure, to be no better than slaves. Wherefore, we should not practice virtue after the manner of the Lacedaemonians, for they. While agreeing with other men in their conception of the highest goods, differ from the rest of mankind in thinking that they are to be obtained by the practice of a single virtue, and since they think these goods and the enjoyment of them greater than the enjoyment derived from the virtues, and that it should be practiced for its own sake, is evident from what has been said. We must now consider how and by what means it is to be obtained. We have already determined that nature and habit and rational principle are required, and of these the proper nature of the citizens has also been defined by us. But we still have to consider whether the training of early life is to be that of rational principle or habit, for these two must accord, and when in accord, they will then form the best of harmonies. The rational principle may be mistaken and fail in attaining the highest ideal of life. And there may be a like evil influence of habit. This much is clear in the first place that, as in all other things, birth implies an antecedent beginning, and that there are beginnings whose end is relative to a further end. Now, in men, rational principle and mind are the end towards which nature strives, so that the birth and moral discipline of the citizens ought to be ordered with a view to them. In the second place, as the soul and body are two. We see also that there are two parts of the soul, the rational and the irrational, and two corresponding states, reason and appetite. And as the body is prior in order of generation to the soul, 
so the irrational is prior to the rational. The proof is that anger and wishing and desire are implanted in children from their very birth, but reason and understanding are developed as they grow older. Wherefore the care of the body ought to precede that of the soul, and training of the appetite of part should follow, none the less our care of it must be for the sake of the reason, and our care of the body for the sake of the soul. 16. Since the legislator should begin by considering how the frames of the children whom he is rearing may be as good as possible, his first care will be about marriage. At what age should his citizens marry, and who are fit to marry? In legislating on this subject he ought to consider the persons and the length of their life, that their procreative life may terminate at the same period, and that they may not differ in their bodily powers, as will be the case if the man is still able to beget children while the woman is unable to bear them, or the woman able to bear while the man is unable to beget, for from these causes arise quarrels and differences between married persons. Secondly, he must consider the time at which the children will succeed to their parents. There ought not to be too great an interval of age, for then the parents will be too old to derive any pleasure from their affection, or to be of any use to them. Nor ought they be too nearly of an age, too youthful marriages there are many objections. The children will be wanting in respect to the parents, who will seem to be their contemporaries, and disputes will arise in the management of the household. Thirdly, and this is the point from which we digressed, the legislator must mould to his will the frames of newly-born children. Almost all these objects may be secured by attention to one point. Since the time of generation is commonly limited within the age of seventy years in the case of a man, and of fifty in the case of a woman, the commencement of the union should conform to these periods. The union of male and female, when too young, is bad for the procreation of children, in all other animals the offspring of the young are small and indeveloped, and with a tendency to produce female children, and therefore also in man, as proved by the fact that in those cities in which men and women are accustomed to marry young, the people are small and weak. In childbirth also younger women suffer more, and more of them die. Some persons say that this was the meaning of the response once given to the Trozinans, the oracle really meant that many died because they married too young. It had nothing to do with the ingathering of the harvest. It also conduces to temperance not to marry too soon, for women who marry early are apt to be wanton, and in men, too, the bodily frame is stunted if they marry while the seed is growing, for there is a time when the growth of the seed also ceases, or continues to but a slight extent. Women should marry when they are about eighteen years of age, and men at seven and thirty. Then they are in the prime of life, and the decline in the powers of both will coincide. Further, the children, if their birth takes place too soon, as may reasonably be accepted, will secede in the beginning of their prime, when their fathers are already in the decline of life, and have nearly reached their term of threescore years and ten. Thus much of the proper age for marriage. The season of the year should also be considered, according to our present custom, people generally limit marriage to the season of winter, and they are right. The precepts of physicians and natural philosophers about generation should also be studied by the parents themselves. The physicians give good advice about the favorable conditions of the body, and the natural philosophers about the winds, of which they prefer the north to the south. 
What constitution in the parent is most advantageous to the offspring is a subject which we will consider more carefully when we speak of the education of children, and we will only make a few general remarks at present. The constitution of an athlete is not suited to the life of a citizen, or to health, or to the procreation of children, any more than the valetudinarian or exhausted constitution, but one which is in a mean between them. A man's constitution should be inured to labor, but not to labor which is excessive, or of one sort only, such as is practiced by athletes. He should be capable of all the actions of a free man. These remarks apply equally to both parents. Women who are with child should be careful of themselves. They should take exercise and have a nourishing diet. The first of these precautions the legislator will easily carry into effect, by requiring that they shall take a walk daily to some temple, where they can worship the gods who preside over birth. Their minds, however, unlike their bodies, they ought to keep quiet, for the offspring derive their natures from their mothers as plants do from the earth. As to the exposure and rearing of children, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live, but that on the ground of an excess in the number of children, if the established customs of the state forbid this, for in our state population has a limit, no child is to be exposed, but when couples have children in excess, let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. What may or may not be lawfully done in these cases depends on the question of life and sensation. And now, having determined at what ages men and women are to begin their union, let us also determine how long they shall continue to beget and bear offspring for the state. Men who are too old, like men who are too young, produce children who are defective in body and mind. The children of a very old men are weakly. The limit, then, should be the age which is the prime of their intelligence, and this, in most persons, according to the notion of some poets who measure life by periods of seven years, is about fifty. At four or five years later they should cease from having families, and from that time forward only cohabit with one another for the sake of health, or for some similar reason. As to adultery, let it be held disgraceful, in general, for any man or woman to be found in any way unfaithful when they are married, and called husband and wife. If during the time of bearing children anything of the sort occur, let the guilty person be punished with a loss of privileges in proportion to the offense. 17. After the children have been born, the manner of rearing them may be supposed to have a great effect on their bodily strength. It would appear from the example of animals, and of those nations who desire to create the military habit, that the food which has most milk in it is best suited to human beings, but the less wine the better, if they would escape diseases. Also, all the motions to which children can be subjected at their early age are very useful. But in order to preserve their tender limbs from distortion, some nations have had recourse to mechanical appliances which straighten their bodies. To accustom children to the cold from their earliest years is also an excellent practice, which greatly conduces to health, and hardens them for military service. Hence many barbarians have a custom of plunging their children at birth into a cold stream. Others, like the Celts, clothe them in a light wrapper only. For human nature should be early habituated to endure all which by habit it can be made to endure, but the process must be gradual and children, from their natural warmth, may be easily trained to bear cold. Such care should attend them in the first stage of life. The next period lasts to the age of five. During this no demand should be made upon the child for study or labor, lest its growth be impeded, 
and there should be sufficient motion to prevent the limbs from being inactive. This can be secured, among other ways, by amusement, but the amusement should not be vulgar or tiring or effeminate. The directors of education, as they are termed, should be careful what tales or stories the children hear, for all such things are designed to prepare the way for the business of latter life, and should be for the most part imitations of the occupations which they will hereafter pursue in earnest. Those are wrong who in their laws attempt to check the loud crying and screaming of children, for these contribute towards their growth, and in a manner exercise their bodies. Straining the voice has a strengthening effect similar to that produced by the retention of the breath in violent exertions. The directors of education should have an eye to their bringing up, and in particular should take care that they are left as little as possible with slaves. For until they are seven years old they must live at home, and therefore, even at this early age, it is to be expected that they should acquire a taint of meanness from what they hear and see. Indeed, there is nothing which the legislators should be more careful to drive away than indecency of speech, for the light utterance of shameful words leads soon to shameful actions. The young, especially, should never be allowed to repeat or hear anything of the sort. A freeman who is found saying or doing what is forbidden, if he be too young as yet to have the privilege of reclining at the public tables, should be disgraced and beaten, and an elder person degraded as his slavish conduct deserves. And since we do not allow improper language, clearly we should also banish pictures or speeches from the stage which are indecent. Let the rulers take care that there be no image or picture representing unseemly actions, except in the temples of those gods at whose festivals the law permits even ribaldry, and whom the law also permits to be worshipped by persons of mature age on behalf of themselves, their children, and their wives. But the legislators should not allow youth to be spectators of iambi, or of comedy, until they are of an age to sit at the public tables, and to drink strong wine. By that time education will have armed them against the evil influences of such representations. We have made these remarks in a cursory manner. They are enough for the present occasion, but hereafter we will return to the subject, and after a fuller discussion determine whether such liberty should or should not be granted, and in what way granted, if at all. Theodorus, the tragic actor, was quite right in saying that he would not allow any other actor, not even if he were quite second-rate, to enter before himself, because the spectators grew fond of the voices which they first heard. And the same principle applies universally to association with things as well as with persons, for we always like best whatever comes first. And therefore youth should be kept strangers to all that is bad, and especially to things which suggest vice or hate. When the five years have passed away, during the two following years, they must look upon the pursuits which they are hereafter to learn. There are two periods of life with reference to which education has to be divided, from seven to the age of puberty, and onwards to the age of one and twenty. The poets, who divide ages by sevens, are in the main right, but we should observe the divisions actually made by nature, for the deficiencies of nature are what art and education seek to fill up. Let us then first inquire if any regulations are to be laid down about children, and secondly, whether the care of them should be the concern of the state or of private individuals, which latter is in our own day the common custom, and in the third place, what these regulations should be. End of Book 7, Sections 15-17